York. This is Democracy Now! Just three weeks ago, the Oklahoma Attorney General asked a court to vacate Richard Glossop's conviction and death sentence because he could no longer stand by the case. Yesterday, the same Attorney General urged the Pardon and Parole Board to vote for clemency and stop his upcoming execution. Uh, But despite all of this, Glossop is scheduled to die in a few weeks for a crime he's always insisted, and the evidence shows that he didn't commit. Is Oklahoma preparing to execute an innocent man? We'll look at the case of Richard Glossop. Oklahoma's attorney general says his conviction should be vacated. But Oklahoma's parole board has just denied Glossop clemency. We'll get the latest. Then the Monroe Doctrine revisited. 200 years ago, in 1823, the United States declared all of Latin America within its sphere of influence. We'll look at a growing push for the U.S. to finally revoke the policy, which has been repeatedly used to justify scores of invasions, interventions, and CIA regime changes in the Americas. The Monroe Doctrine, which is now 200 years old, has been used as a cover for the United States to impose its will on Latin America, and that era is coming to an end. With progressive governments coming to power, vibrant civil society, they're demanding respect and cooperation instead of domination. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Sudan, fighting continues between the army and paramilitary rapid support forces despite a U.S.-brokered 72-hour ceasefire, with airstrikes reported in the capital Khartoum and deadly battles in Darfur. Residents and foreign nationals have become increasingly desperate to leave the most dangerous hotspots and worsening shortages of food, water and medical care. The White House said Wednesday, a second U.S. citizen, a Sudanese-American doctor, was killed in the conflict. While the U.S. successfully evacuated its diplomatic personnel soon after fighting broke out April 15th, an estimated 16,000 Americans, many of them dual citizens, still remain in Sudan this week, though it's unclear how many of them want to leave. Concern is growing that violence against Sudanese citizens will escalate after foreign nationals are evacuated. Tens of thousands of people have fled Sudan to neighbor countries, including Chad, which already hosts more than half a million refugees. This is a Sudanese mother, now at a refugee camp in Chad. Armed men came to our compound and asked us to leave before we became collateral victims. Under threat, we left in a hurry in a donkey to come here. I got separated from my seven children and I can't find them. We have seen parents massacred by Arab militias while they have done nothing. We are victims of gratuitous barbarism that we do not understand. Ukraine's government says one person was killed and 23 others wounded after Russia's navy launched four missiles from the Black Sea, striking residences in the city of Mykolaiv. Elsewhere, a Ukrainian journalist working for the Italian La Repubblica newspaper was shot dead Wednesday on the outskirts of Kherson in southern Ukraine. The newspaper reports Russian snipers killed Bogdan Bitik, who was working as an interpreter, and wounded Italian reporter Carado Zunino. The Committee to 
Protect Journalists reports at least 15 journalists have been killed in Ukraine since Russia invaded. On Wednesday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, held his first talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. China's foreign ministry said after the phone call, it would dispatch former Chinese ambassador to Russia, Li Hui, as a special envoy to Kyiv to find a political settlement to the war. China always stood on the side of peace on the Ukraine issue. China advocates political settlement of the crisis and promotes talks for peace. Officials with both NATO and Russia welcomed Wednesday's phone call, but NATO leader Jens Stoltenberg criticized China for not condemning Russia's invasion. In Russia, the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny said Wednesday he's facing additional charges of terrorism in Russia that could bring him a life sentence. Navalny, visibly gaunt, rejected the charges while speaking via video link from prison during an appearance before a Moscow court. Navalny's microphone was cut after he alluded to his time spent in solitary confinement. President Joe Biden has pledged to deploy nuclear-armed submarines to South Korea and to include officials from Seoul and nuclear planning operations targeting North Korea. Biden made the pledge Wednesday as the White House hosted the South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, for a state visit, marking 70 years of the U.S.-South Korean alliance. This is President Yoon. Our two leaders have decided to significantly strengthen extended deterrence of our two countries against North Korea's nuclear and missile threats so that we can achieve peace through the superiority of overwhelming forces and not a false peace based on the goodwill of the other side. As part of the agreement, President Yoon renewed a pledge not to pursue the development of South Korean nuclear arsenal. Turkish authorities have arrested at least 110 pro-Kurdish activist journalists and lawyers in a series of raids across 21 Turkish provinces. The arrests come just weeks ahead of a May 14th parliamentary and presidential election, which could see President Recep Tayyip Erdogan extend his 20-year rule. Erdogan canceled scheduled campaign rallies this week for health reasons. Turkey's government accused those arrested of having ties to the Kurdish Workers' Party, known as the PKK, which Turkey claims is a terrorist group. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans have narrowly approved a bill to raise the debt limit in exchange for a 13 percent cut in discretionary spending. The legislation also caps spending over the next decade, blocks the White House's student debt relief plan, slashes funding to the IRS, and blocks tax credits for renewable energy projects like wind and solar. It also imposes work requirements on able-bodied adults up to 55 years old in order to receive Medicaid or SNAP. That's the supplement. Nutrition Assistance Program. New York Democratic Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said Wednesday Congress should instead reverse Trump-era tax cuts that overwhelmingly benefit the wealthy and are set to increase the federal deficit by $1.9 trillion over a decade. This isn't just about continued cuts to the poor and to the working class in our essential services, but we can raise revenue. In fact, in tax cuts in 2017 passed by the uh, other side of the aisle, we see wonderful tax cuts for yacht owners and private jets. But in order to balance our budget now, we're talking about cuts to SNAP, to food out of babies' mouths, instead of actually re-examining the inequities within our tax system. 
Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the House bill dead on arrival in the Senate. Without a deal on the debt ceiling, the U.S. could default on its bills as soon as June. Oklahoma's Pardon and Parole Board has denied clemency to death row prisoner Richard Glossop, even though Oklahoma's own attorney general has sought to vacate Glossop's 1998 murder conviction. On Wednesday, the board voted two to two to deny clemency despite widespread doubt over Glossop's guilt. An execution date has been set for May 18th. We'll have more on the story after headlines. Montana's Republican-controlled House of Representatives voted Wednesday to censure the state's first and only openly transgender lawmaker, Zoe Zephyr, banning her from the House floor, forbidding her from speaking. Zephyr will only be able to cast votes remotely for the remainder of the legislative session. The move comes a week after Zephyr delivered a searing condemnation of a bill that would ban gender-affirming health care for youth and after her supporters led a protest inside the state capitol Monday. Zephyr has since been largely silenced on the House floor after the Republican House Speaker demanded she apologize. Zephyr did speak Wednesday ahead of the censure vote. And when the Speaker asks me to apologize— what he is, uh, on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He is asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. Tune into Democracy Now! Friday, when Representative Zoe Zephyr will join us on the show, along with Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones. Elsewhere, North Dakota signed a new law that bans transgender people from using public bathrooms or locker rooms that align with their gender identity. In Missouri, a judge has temporarily blocked harsh new restrictions on gender-affirming care in response to a legal challenge by the ACLU of Missouri and others. And the U.S. Justice Department has sued Tennessee over its law banning gender-affirming care for minors. In Florida, Disney's suing Republican Governor Ron DeSantis for taking control of its self-governing district around the Disney World theme park, accusing DeSantis of, quote, targeted campaign of government retaliation in response to Disney's opposition to Florida's anti-LGBTQ so-called don't-say-gay law. Meanwhile, Disney has begun laying off thousands more workers this week, including employees of Disney Properties, ABC News and ESPN. The company has laid off some 4,000 workers since last month. And here in New York, E. Jean Carroll took the stand Wednesday in her civil lawsuit against Donald Trump for battery and defamation, telling a court, quote, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me. Carroll has accused Trump of raping her in a department store dressing room in the 90s and subsequently accusing her of lying about it. Carroll told jurors, quote, he lied and shattered my reputation and I'm here to try and get my life back, unquote. The judge in the case warned Trump may have engaged in jury tampering for posting on his Truth Social site that the case was a, quote, made-up scam and a witch hunt. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Welcome, uh, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
We begin today's show in Oklahoma, where the state's Pardon and Parole Board has denied clemency for death row prisoner Richard Glossop, even though Oklahoma's own attorney general has sought to vacate Glossop's conviction. On Wednesday, Oklahoma's Republican attorney general, Gettner Drummond, took the unusual step of joining Glossop's defense team in arguing for clemency. But the Pardon and Parole Board voted two to two to deny clemency despite widespread doubt over Glossop's guilt. An execution date has now been set for May 18th. This is part of what Oklahoma's attorney general told the parole board. I want to acknowledge how unusual it is for the state to support a clemency application of a death row inmate. I'm not aware of any time in our history that an attorney general has appeared before this board and argued for clemency. I'm also not aware of any time in the history of Oklahoma when justice would require it. Ultimately, that is why we are here. Everyone in this room, we are here to see that justice is done. We may have different opinions on what justice looks like in this case, and I fully respect those differences. But in the end, that's what we must have. For me, as the state's chief law enforcement officer, I must be primarily considering what justice is for the state of Oklahoma. And that is what has compelled me to devote hours, countless hours, of my time examining the facts in this case. And it is that sense of justice that has compelled me to release materials to the defense team that have been long withheld. I was concerned enough by the research that I had observed that I should retain an independent counsel to conduct a comprehensive review. That was Oklahoma's attorney general, Gettner Drummond, urging the Oklahoma Parole Board to grant clemency to Richard Glossop, who has always maintained his innocence. His case dates back to 1997, when Glossop was working as a manager at the Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma City when his boss, Barry Van Trees, was murdered. A maintenance worker, Justin Sneed, admitted he beat Van Trees to death with a baseball bat, but claimed Glossop offered him money for the killing. The case rested almost solely on Sneed's claims. No physical evidence ever tied Glossop to the crime. And Sneed, in exchange for his testimony, did not get the death penalty. We go now to Oklahoma City, where we're joined by the award-winning investigative reporter Liliana Segura. She's a senior reporter for The Intercept. She's closely covered Richard Glossop's case since 2015. Liliana, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain how unusual what happened yesterday was and go more deeply into the Glossop case. Well, thank you so much for having me, Amy. And, and you know, your your introduction did a really good job laying out uh, some of the basics about this case. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I am still trying to process what happened yesterday because it was so unusual, um, not only unusual, but completely unexpected. Uh, three weeks ago, those of us following the case, those of us, uh, those those people involved in this case, truly did not expect that this uh, clemency hearing would go forward. Uh, Gentner Drummond, as he said, uh, had taken the very unusual step of of uh, filing a motion before the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, asking the court to vacate uh, Glossop's conviction and send it back to Oklahoma City for a new trial. Uh, that uh, the Oklahoma City DA uh, had made very clear that. This 
this was a case that was probably not going to be uh, retried and that and and uh, Richard Glossop was really uh, in a position where he was able to imagine a possible eventual release, uh, life outside of uh, prison walls. Uh, and almost as quickly as that uh, happened, you know, things just sort of changed. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the court unexpectedly uh, rejected the attorney general's motion. Uh, and and then uh, rather than intervene uh, to to stop the clemency hearing from going forward, uh, as Governor Stitt has done before, uh, uh, the clemency uh, hearing did take place. And on Wednesday, yesterday morning, uh, I attended a packed hearing where Gettner Drummond, along with Rex Duncan, the, the former prosecutor who undertook uh, an independent investigation into this case, both spoke about why they believe that this execution should not go forward. Uh, Rex Duncan said, this is, uh, you know, a first for me. I, I'm not usually here to agree with the defense. Uh, and so when uh, the board members came back at the very end uh, with this two to two vote, uh, which effectively denies clemency, everyone was shocked. It was a really stunning moment. And I think a lot of us are still waking up this morning trying to grasp what really happened. Well, Liliana, could you talk about some of the details that have emerged through the years of uh, destroyed evidence by the state, misstatements by key witnesses, what the the basis of even the recommendation by the attorney general uh, uh, to to uh, uh, for clemency? Can you talk about uh, you talk about uh, the specifics? Absolutely. And let me just say, uh, because there's no way to cover it all. This is really a case that's taken a tremendous uh, number of twists and turns. Uh, if, you're, if your uh, viewers and listeners want to go deep into this case, I would urge them to look at the coverage that my colleague Jordan Smith and I have produced going back to 2015. It's all in one place at The Intercept. Uh, I would also urge them to watch the 2017 four-part documentary by Joe Berlinger called Killing Richard Glossip uh, that also goes into these, these questions. And in fact, uh, it's part of the reason, a large part of the reason, that documentary series that uh, a number of very prominent right-wing lawmakers here in Oklahoma have have uh, taken on this case uh, as, a, as a campaign uh, for them. But to answer your question more directly, you know, from the beginning, this case, uh, the evidence in this case was weak. As you highlighted, you know, this this story of Richard Glossett being the mastermind behind this murder came solely from Justin Sneed. Uh there were two trials. The first trial and uh, the first conviction in 1998 was actually overturned in 2001 uh, on the grounds that Glossop received ineffective assistance of counsel. One of the critical mistakes that Glossop's attorneys made was their failure to show the jury a really astonishing uh, uh, videotape, which showed how two Oklahoma City police detectives had interrogated Justin Sneed um, and, and in fact named Glossop something like six times before Justin Sneed ever claimed that Glossop had uh, put him up to this, uh, the detectives were telling Sneed, uh, you know, we know there's more to this. He's he's setting you up. They named Richard Glossop. And Sneed, eventually, you see in this tape, goes along uh, and, and and helps create this narrative that, that has defined this case ever, ever since. And so that was all known. That's been known uh, for, for years and years. Uh, Richard Glossop came very close in 2015 to being executed. Um, and at that time, witnesses had come forward to say, wait a minute, Justin Sneed was portrayed as this hapless, clueless kind 
kind of follower who did anything that Richard Glossop would say, that couldn't have been further from the truth. You know, people that knew him and, and had met him in jail said that that Sneed admitted, boasted even that 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 he was had gotten away with something that that Glossop was facing the death penalty for. So so there's a lot that has been known, but 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 in terms of the the newest revelations, uh, this has come out largely over the course of the past year. Um, in in uh, some years back, uh, these right wing lawmakers uh, or a bipartisan group, but but largely spearheaded by conservative lawmakers in Oklahoma, uh, uh, have um, were urging for for the governor for the parole board to take a closer look at Glossop's case. And when that those efforts uh, failed, they they sought a, a law firm that would undertake an independent investigation. And this this was um, done by a law firm named uh, Reed Smith. Took on the case pro bono uh, devoted countless hours, uh, interviewed some 40 witnesses, dozens of people who were never interviewed by the police, uh, 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 looked at all of the records and, and indeed received stuff that had never been uh, turned over before. And some of the more some of the most explosive revelations uh, in, in the Reed Smith report, which came out last year, uh, was that, for example, uh, Justin Sneed had actually sought to recant his testimony between the first and the second trial. There are uh, letters to his uh, attorney asking, uh, you know, how he can how he can uh, undo this deal that he made. Uh, you know, sort of expressing. Uh, 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 a sense of regret, uh, almost. And, and this was also sort of known, you know, back years back, Justin Sneed's own daughter had come forward saying that her, her father, uh, was, was regretting, uh, the fact that he had, had, uh, sent, helped send Richard Glossop to death row. So these letters from Sneed, that's one piece, uh, significant piece of evidence. There's also a lot of evidence that it turns out was destroyed between the first and the second trial. Um, this included financial records that were critical because, uh, these records would have undercut the state's theory of this crime, which was that Glossip wanted to get rid of Barry Van Trees so that he could take over the motel, um, which was really uh, these financial records, those that were not destroyed, um, the ones that we have since seen, uh, really go a long way in, in debunking that theory. Uh, so, so this evidence that was destroyed, uh, one of the prosecutors at the second trial um, who assisted the lead prosecutor uh, has since said over and over again that this is horrifying to them, uh, to him, that, that this should never have happened. This shouldn't happen in death penalty Liliana, cases. Liliana, we want to turn to Richard in his own words, speaking remotely at his clemency hearing on Wednesday. First, I want the Van Trees family to know how terrible I feel for what they have gone through. When your family has gone through, no family should ever have to endure. I must say again for this hearing that I did not know about Justin Sneed's plan to commit any crime against Mary Van Trees, and I would have never thought of paying anybody to commit a crime. I absolutely did not cause Justin Sneed to commit any crime against Mr. Van Trees, let alone to murder him. I know that in the chaos of Mr. Van Trees' death, I made mistakes in how I responded. I'm deeply sorry that in my fear and confusion, I caused anyone any further harm. Today, I want to thank many people who have taken the time to look at this case closely and to take a stand about it. 
So that's Richard Glossop speaking at his clemency hearing. As we begin to wrap up, Liliana, um, can you tell us what this pardon and parole board is? The two-to-two vote, how does a divided vote lead to his death? And what about the governor's stance, uh, Governor Stitt? Yes. To, to, to be honest, that's a question that all of us are asking ourselves and trying to understand. One of the next steps uh, that uh, that Glossop's lawyer, Don Knight, is, is taking is to challenge that very uh, setup. Um, it's critical to understand that this is a five-member board. One of the board members, Richard Smotherman, recused himself because his wife, Connie Smotherman, prosecuted Glossop and sent him to death row. So that recusal was absolutely appropriate. What makes absolutely no sense is that the resulting vote uh, still requires, this is four people voting, it still requires a three uh, three votes in favor of clemency. And so a two to two tie, as it turns out, uh, is is weighted in favor of the no's. Uh, and, and so that that needs, that is being challenged. Um, uh, as far as the board's makeup, you know, this is a five member board. Three of the board members are appointed by Stitt. Two of the other are appointed by two different courts, including the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals that has repeatedly refused to consider the evidence of, of Glossop's innocence. Uh, so all of these boards are, are political. Um, but but again, we were not expecting this outcome at all. Uh, this is a, a severe blow. And it was a really astonishing moment um, after this three hour hearing uh, to, to hear it uh, result in that way. Yeah. And Liliana, I wanted to ask you, what was the uh, the victim's family also spoke at the board meeting? Could you talk about what they said as well? Absolutely. So, you know, like I mentioned, Richard Glossop had faced execution. Well, this is his ninth execution date, but he had come extremely close in 2015. Uh, prior to that, uh, there was an uh, there was a clemency hearing in 2014 where the widow of Barry, uh, Barry Van Trees, uh, Donna Van Trees, spoke about the impact of her husband's murder. You know, they had several young children. Uh, she she said what victims' family members often said that this was, uh, uh, you know, a loss that was indescribable. That uh, severely impacted her family and continues to. So she 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 repeated um, a lot of what she shared, as did other uh, family members. But they also uh, described a, a deep sense of betrayal at this idea that the state, rather than arguing as it basically always does in favor of this execution, that that the top law enforcement officer in the state was actually saying that he he didn't want to see this execution proceed uh and 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 that was you know uh, in some ways understandable but as your as your clip that you played early on uh demonstrates the job of the attorney general isn't to to satisfy the 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 wishes and emotions of the victim's family it's to do justice uh and, and, and you know for the for the people of Oklahoma and that includes Richard Glossop and his loved ones and so um that was a really difficult thing to listen to um because uh well in that moment uh you know we all empathize with the pain of of the victim's family but but I personally was feeling like we were going to hear a vote in favor of clemency. And so, again, it's just uh, it's really disorienting to find ourselves here. Finally, Liliana, uh, the state of Oklahoma is going to is pushing through some what something like two dozen executions in the next two years, um, this one being uh, one of them. 
Well, in fact, yeah, th that had been the, the plan under Gentner Drummond's predecessor. Uh, uh, very tellingly, Gentner Drummond, who came into office in January, one of his first moves uh, was uh, not only to launch this independent probe into Richard Glossop's case, but also to slow down this frenzied execution schedule. Uh, and and so th that they, there are still a lot of people in line to be executed um, after Richard Glossop uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, but he explicitly uh, said after attending the first execution of the year in January that this this uh, schedule was untenable, uh, that it was um, taking a toll on the employees of the Department of Correction who are tasked with carrying out these executions and that he, he wanted to, to slow down those executions. So the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals grudgingly uh, allowed this change in schedule. Uh, but but yes, Oklahoma continues to execute people. Um, and there I should also say that there are a lot of problems with the cases um, that, that will follow uh, Richard Glossop's execution. We just date. have 10 seconds. Uh, does Richard Glossop's case go to the Supreme Court? Yes, uh, that it, absolutely. It will be um, before the court to review. Liliana Segura, senior reporter for The Intercept, has covered Richard Glossop's case since 2015. You can go to Intercept's website to see all of the coverage. She was speaking to us from Oklahoma City. Coming up 200 years ago, the U.S. declared all of Latin America within its sphere of influence. We'll look at a growing push for the U.S. to finally revoke the Monroe Doctrine, which has been repeatedly used to justify scores of invasions, interventions, CIA regime changes in the America. Stay with us. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Oh, yeah. And go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be. Oh, freedom, Harry Belafonte. He died at his home Tuesday in New York at the age of 96. To see our full show on Harry Belafonte in his own words, go to democracynow.org. This is Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. This year marks 200 years since the United States effectively declared all of Latin America and the Caribbean within its sphere of influence. On December 2, 1823, President James Monroe outlined what became known as the Monroe Doctrine. He warned other nations to stay out of the Americas, saying, quote, we should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety, unquote. Over the past 200 years, the Monroe Doctrine has been repeatedly used to justify scores of invasions, interventions, and CIA regime changes in the Americas. This is Vermont's independent Senator Bernie Sanders talking about the Monroe Doctrine last year, shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine. Mr. President, Vladimir Putin may be a liar and a demagogue, but it is hypocritical— <clears throat> for the United States to insist that we, as a nation, 
do not accept the principle of spheres of influence. For the last 200 years, our country has operated under the Monroe Doctrine, embracing the principle that as the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere, the United States has the right, according to the United States, to intervene against any country that might threaten our alleged interests. That's United States policy. And under this doctrine, the United States has undermined and overthrown at least a dozen countries throughout Latin America, Central America, and the Caribbean. That was Senator Bernie Sanders speaking last year. Well, on Saturday, American University in Washington, D.C. will be hosting a one-day conference titled Burying 200 Years of the U.S. Monroe Doctrine. Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez will give the opening plenary address. We're joined now by two other guests as well. Nick Estes is an indigenous writer and historian, co-founder of the indigenous resistance group The Red Nation, and a citizen of the Lower Brule's Sioux Tribe, author of Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. Nick is joining us from Minneapolis. In Washington, D.C., Medea Benjamin is with us, the co-founder of Code Pen, co-author of the new book War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Medea, let's begin with you. Um, talk about the whole push for this conference called Burying the Monroe Doctrine. Code Pink initiated this and got a, a group of partners around the country to join with us in recognizing the immense changes that are happening in Latin America, the progressive governments that are coming into power all over the region, the vibrant civil society that exists. And yet, on the other hand, you have the U.S. trying to continue to impose its will on Latin America and the Caribbean, whether it's through a continued military presence, through brutal economic sanctions that are imposed on Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, uh, or through the uh, U.S. companies that try to continue to exploit the, uh, the mines, the logging, uh, the lithium, the uh, resources, the oil. And so you have a real disconnect. And we are saying that it's time that U.S. policy recognizes that this is not the U.S. backyard. The U.S. is looking at Latin America and saying, oh, my goodness, China is now becoming the major trading partner with all of these countries in Latin America and wants to now push China away. That's not the attitude we want in U.S. policy. We want the U.S. to finally recognize the sovereignty of countries in Latin America, the reality that Latin America has changed, and that it is time for a policy that is one based on mutual respect. Yeah, I'd like to bring Nick Estes into the conversation as well, writer, historian, author of Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. Nick, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, the parallels between the Monroe Doctrine uh, and also the Doctrine of Discovery, which uh, a lot of Americans are not aware of, but which has often been cited in U.S. law. This was hundreds of years uh, older even than the Monroe Doctrine, uh, and it essentially uh, permitted or, or 
or sanctioned uh, the regarding of the native peoples of the Americas as a, an inferior race. Uh, yet the Pope managed this year to finally uh, discard and uh, the the uh, the doctrine of discovery. Could you talk about that? Coincidentally, in 1823, the year that the Monroe Doctrine was enunciated, um, you also had a Supreme Court decision uh, through the Marshall Court uh, that decided that through, uh, you know, this process of Cherokee removal, you have the influx of white settlers into the state of Georgia. You have uh, Chief Justice John Marshall declaring that the United States had inherited the doctrine of discovery or the discovery principle from previous colonizing powers. And in this case, he traces it back to the Holy See or the Catholic Church. Um, but this sort of process of uh, colonization and what could only be described as ideologies of brutality really originates mostly from the founding fathers themselves. They use these, you know, this doctrine of the doctrine of discovery as sort of a made up excuse to colonize indigenous peoples. But if you go back to somebody like Thomas Jefferson, you know, when he was debating uh, what this new empire of liberty would look like, he envisioned this empire expanding through the Western Hemisphere and having a global influence. And during the debates about what the Constitution would look like, there were two sort of primary enemies that the United States was worried about in, 18, in the 1880s when it was writing its Constitution, and that was the indigenous nations on the Western frontier, as well as competing European powers. And so when the United States begins to form its military, it uses a tax levy system to basically raise its standing army. Um, this was a, an idea from Alexander Hamilton, who saw the dual threats of European influence as well as indigenous nations on the Western frontier. Um, and this begins sort of the process of looking at, you know, to quote the Declaration of Independence, the merciless Indian savages uh, on the Western frontier, but also looking at the rest of uh, the hemisphere. The, the, the treaties that Thomas Jefferson uh, signed or that he encouraged to be signed with indigenous nations essentially tried to bind them to the United States so that they couldn't make treaties with other European powers. And that same principle applied to uh, the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, it's important to, to point out that in 1823, the United States was a relatively small nation compared to its present-day form. So, in 1823, the Monroe Doctrine is aligning itself with the doctrine of discovery as sort of this imperialist, expansionist ideology um, that we can see, you know, the effects of today. So, Nick, uh, and I should add, Nick, you are a professor uh, at the University of Minnesota in the American Indian Studies program. You have the Pope um, renouncing the doctrine of discovery. What about Congress, the Monroe Doctrine? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to point out that the Pope himself, you know, when, when they repudiated the doctrine of discovery in their press release, they pointed out that the Holy See had essentially abrogated it by, you know, 1537. And they make this claim that they have been recognizing indigenous rights uh, ever since, um, which I think is a very dubious claim, especially given the recent discoveries of, you know, thousands of native children who died at the hands of the Catholic Church uh, in these brutal residential schools in Canada, as well as what's being uncovered in the United States. Um, but for the doctrine of discovery to be actually 
uh, excised from federal Indian law would require something beyond the courts. And in fact, you know, when you when you travel throughout the world, um, when you talk about the federal Indian law system, a lot of people are still, you know, uh, surprised that the United States is using this 15th century papal bull to justify the taking of indigenous lands when many countries throughout the world, most countries throughout the world have moved well beyond that. And you're going to it's going to take more than just, you know, a repudiation or words uh, for the doctrine of discovery to comp- be completely removed from that sort of uh, the institution of federal Indian law and policy. But also with the Monroe Doctrine, you had John Kerry in 2013 saying that the United States is moving beyond the Monroe Doctrine. But at the same time, you have Obama implementing sanctions on Venezuela. So which is it? You know, you can have great words, but the actions don't necessarily match those words. I wanted to ask you a question now. You're uh, co-hosting the show, of course, as you have for all these 27 years, but you're also the keynote speaker at the American University Conference on Burying the Monroe Doctrine. And among your books is the one that was just reissued in paperback that is a, a textbook in so many classrooms across this country called Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. Can you talk about the connection between the Monroe Doctrine of 200 years ago um, and the exodus of people to the United States and how the U.S. government treats them? Yes. Well, it's it's precisely the the implementation of the Monroe Doctrine and the creation of what essentially became uh, the birthplace of the American empire in Latin America uh, that uh, resulted in so many people from the, uh, Latin America coming to the United States in the uh, in the especially in the late 20th century and the beginning of this century. And a lot of people don't understand that relationship. And in fact, it's precisely those countries in Latin America that the United States uh, once uh, uh, intervened in, occupied, uh, and uh, executed regime changes in that have produced the most migrants uh, to the United States. Uh, So there's a direct relationship uh, between the empire the United States built in Latin America and the migration crisis uh, that we continue to uh, face here in this country. And, you know, and I don't think that most Americans really understand the the uh, the enormous number of interventions uh, that our governments have uh, have perpetrated in Latin America. I mean, you can think of um, 1965 when Lyndon Johnson sent in uh, several thousand U.S. troops to occupy the Dominican Republic. At that time, Johnson specifically said that the United States has no intention of allowing another communist government uh, to exist uh, in the uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, now, first of all. The Dominican Revolution was not a communist revolution. It was a revolution against generals who had instituted a dictatorship. It was a democratic revolution. But the United States felt it had the right uh, to invade the Dominican Republic and reorder that society uh, based on the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, And you could go into uh, Panama in in 1989, uh, Guatemala in 1954, the Dominican Republic even earlier in uh, in the, the in 1916, uh, uh, Mexico, Honduras, Nicaragua, all of these countries were invaded by U.S. military forces based on the established right, as far as Washington understood, that it 
could determine uh, what was happening throughout all of its quote backyard or its or its empire. And I think that that's that's what's at stake uh, that needs to be finally renounced, especially given the enormous changes in Latin America, that Latin America is no longer subservient to the United States in the way or its governments are no longer subservient to the United States in the way that they have been in the past. And Juan, we first met in Haiti, covering Haiti, uh, one U.S.-backed coup after another, and you have the occupation of Haiti by U.S. forces back in 1915. Yes, Haiti was another example. Grenada, who who, who, who remembers Grenada and, uh, and, and the United States, it, a tiny little country, and yet the United States felt it had the right to send troops into Grenada to essentially change the government of Grenada. There are so many countries— uh, in the Western Hemisphere that have experienced this, that it's no wonder that now finally, not only the people of these countries, but the governments themselves are standing up and saying, hey, we don't need to uh, uh, to, to uh, allow this uh, anymore. And now you're having throughout the entire uh, uh, South America and Central America and the Caribbean, governments coming to power that are saying we need a new relationship, a more equitable relationship with the United States. And Medea Benjamin, you're in Washington, D.C. right now, where the conference is going to be at American University. Um, headquartered there also is the Organization of American States. Can you explain the significance of this institution? Well, this is an institution created in 1948, and it's always been dominated by the United States. It is supposedly for Latin America and the Caribbean, but it is ironic that the headquarters is right here in the United States. And it has been a way for the United States to exert its influence in Latin America. Uh, it is seen by more and more of the progressive Latin American countries as an old institution, a dinosaur uh, that needs to either be uh, significantly reformed or replaced. Uh, this is especially true after the OAS was instrumental in the overthrow of the government of, in Bolivia of Evo Morales. Uh, and the head of the OAS, Almagro, is seen as somebody throughout the region that um, is too close to the United States and doesn't represent the new Latin America. That is why there is a lot of effort being put into strengthening the alternative called CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. Uh, and um, I think there is uh, more and more of a recognition uh, that OAS should go by the wayside in history uh, because it does not represent the new Latin America. And I do want to say that for people who want to uh, join us, there's still some room in Washington, D.C. You can go to americaspolicyforum.org uh, to register. And there will be hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people watching online, uh, both in the United States and throughout Latin America, because it will be simultaneously uh, in Spanish as well. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask Nick also about the uh, the enormous changes among the indigenous people of Latin America and uh, their impact on native peoples in this country. Uh, could you uh, talk about the changes? Uh, because obviously much of Latin American history is also the history of indigenous uh, populations there as well as the of, uh, of Africans and the African slave trade. But can you talk about the uh, the the enormous changes that are occurring in Latin America among indigenous people. 
Medea mentioned the 2019 uh, U.S.-backed coup uh, that ousted, uh, you know, indigenous president uh, Evo Morales. Uh, and we can look at, uh, you know, Bolivia as, you know, the plurinational state and the project that it is um, really uh, as a beacon of hope for uh, a lot of indigenous people in the Americas to look beyond the sort of hegemonic, singular mode of, you know, liberal uh, democracy that we see uh, in the United States that doesn't really privilege plurality, but privileges homogeneity. Um, and uh, looking at the successes of that movement and how in 2010 you had something like the the People's Accords that was, you know, passed there that really recognized the rights of Mother Earth and, you know, Pachamama, that was really reflective, you know, reflected in the constitutional process that Bolivia has undergone and the, you know, the process of change that has, it has undergone in the last two decades. Um, and we can see, like, even how the Monroe Doctrine attempts to strangle or choke out alternatives. Um, and, and in this case, it's an indigenous alternative for the hemisphere. It's not just a national project for Bolivia, but it was looked at, you know, as a sort of international or hemispheric project for indigenous peoples. And we see this, you know, same kind of process underway in a country like um, Brazil, uh, where you, you're coming out of a very brutal, uh, you know, presidency under um, and the Bolsonaro and the devastation of indigenous lands, the threat uh, against indigenous rights. Um, but then you see the indigenous movements really coalescing around uh, this broader movement for progressive changes, not just within uh, the domestic policies of Brazil itself, but also internationally and in how um, working in cooperation with different nations and different movements throughout the world, how to lessen the impact and, and in, some, in some instances to stop the devastation of indigenous lands uh, within uh, that particular region. And I also just want to point out that the indigenous movements in North America um, and the recognition that has been gained at the United Nations would not have been possible uh, without the support of, you know, uh, countries from the global south, as well as our indigenous relatives uh, in the global south. And so when we're talking about the Monroe Doctrine and we think about things like sanctions in Venezuela, you know, those sanctions target not just high-level government officials, they target everyday civilians and people. And one, one aspect and one aspect of uh, Venezuelan society that's often forgotten is indigenous people within Venezuela who are, who were suffering the, you know, very deleterious aspects of the sanctions regime. And so when we're talking about repudiating the doctrine of discovery, uh, domestically within the United States or repudiating the Monroe doctrine, we have those kind of movements in mind and those kind of aspects of our struggle that isn't just confined to, you know, securing gains for indigenous peoples in the United States, but it's definitely part of this hemispheric approach. Nick Estes, we want to thank you for being with us, indigenous writer and historian, co-founder of the indigenous resistance group, The Red Nation, and a citizen of the Lower Brule. He is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of American Indian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us. Medea Benjamin, please stay with us. After break, we're going to talk about the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. Down the way where the nights are gay And the sun shines daily on the mountain top. 
I took a trip on a sailing ship And when I reached Jamaica I made a stop But I'm sad to say I'm on my way Won't be back for many a day My heart is down, my head is turning around I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town Down at the market you can hear ladies cry out While on their heads they bear Aki rice salt fish are nice And the rum is fine Jamaica Farewell by Harry Belafonte. He died at his home on Tuesday in New York at the age of 96. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show looking at the war in Ukraine. On Wednesday, the Chinese President Xi Jinping spoke by phone with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. The call comes two months after China put forward a 12-point peace plan to end the war. During Wednesday's call, she reportedly said negotiations are the only viable way out of the conflict. She also uh, offered to send a special envoy to Ukraine and the region to help resolve the crisis. To talk more about the war in Ukraine and growing calls for negotiations, Medea Benjamin is still with us, co-founder of Code Pink, co-author of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, co-author of a recent piece in the progressive headline, Pentagon Leaks Punch a Hole in the U.S. Propaganda War. Medea, we don't have much time, but if you can talk about the significance of um, China's call with Ukraine, Zelensky speaking to Xi and now sending this top Chinese envoy to Kyiv. And also, um, if you can talk about the latest news uh, around Ukraine right now. Well, we saw from the Pentagon leaks how the U.S. is painting this rosy picture of the war in Ukraine when the opposite is true. There is a grinding war of attrition, as the leaks say, that is heading towards a stalemate. It really is a stalemate. And yet the U.S. is not participating in any of these efforts for peace talks. Uh, you see China taking the lead, talking to both Putin and now Zelensky, uh, an incredibly positive thing. Uh, it also relates to our talk about Latin America, because we see Lula is not only uh, involved in this, but is going around the world trying to create a peace club of nations to put pressure on all the parties. But who is the odd man out in this? It is the United States that still refuses to uh, uh, to get involved in the peace talks. I had a chance to talk to Nancy Pelosi last night and said to her, look, uh, the, 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 the world is calling for uh, negotiations, and the U.S. keeps saying no. She says, we don't need negotiations, we need victory. And so uh, we must do more to put pressure on our Congress and on the White House to get involved in this growing call for peace talks. And Medea, the fact that uh, that China has continued to have uh, a uh, a relationship uh, clearly with Ukraine, China is actually the biggest trading partner of Ukraine, and uh, Zelensky has refrained from uh, uh, from openly criticizing China's stance. What do you see as the potential uh, for uh, for uh, Chinese efforts at trying to uh, reach a? a a, uh, a peace or a, 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 a according to its 12 point plan, uh, uh, the possibility is that succeeding. 
Well, the potential is tremendous because China has so much leverage with Russia. Uh, it is it, Russia is dependent on China now for buying its energy, for a uh, number one trading partner. And so uh, the the idea that China can push Putin to the negotiation table is very powerful. But who is going to push Zelensky? Yes, he had a good meeting, a good phone call with uh, with uh, Xi. But also there is the United States, which is the number one supporter of Ukraine's war at this point. And if the United States is not calling for peace talks. In fact, the United States has been sabotaging peace talks all along. So that is why it's our responsibility. The U.S. hides behind this idea that nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, we couldn't possibly push Zelensky to the negotiating table. Yet every time Zelensky has been talking, whether it's uh, to the uh, Erdogan in Turkey, whether it's to Naftali Bennett in, in, in the Israeli efforts, and whether it's now with China, uh, the U.S. has sabotaged that. So we are the ones that are holding up a peace process. I wanted to play uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky speaking Wednesday after his call with the Chinese president. Today, I had a long and mostly reasonable conversation with the leader of China. Typically, these types of talks are seen as a chance to create new opportunities. Right now, there is an opportunity to give new energy to the relations between Ukraine and China. We also have the opportunity to use China's political power to reinforce the principles and rules that peace should be built upon. Of course, a crucial aspect of our conversation is discussing our views on restoring a just peace. I presented the Ukrainian peace formula and its specific points. We agreed to continue our communication. We just have a minute and a half, Medea, but I wanted to get your response to Zelensky and also this new piece you wrote in the progressive Pentagon leaks punch a hole in the U.S. propaganda war, this trove of documents um, that, to say the least, um, caught the Biden administration unawares. What specifically the documents said about the Ukraine war? Well, it said that it's a stalemate. It said that there are uh, special forces from NATO inside Ukraine that we are not told about. This is in addition to all the CIA personnel, the U.S. troops that are massing around the borders. Um, when we hear from the inside documents that this is an unwinnable war on the battlefield, we have to question why the U.S. is pushing Ukraine to continue to allow these horrific battles to take place, like in Bakhmud, where so many soldiers are dying on both sides every day, uh, and how this could easily become a war, a third world war or a nuclear war. Uh, I, I am sure that if it continues along this way, Zelensky will start asking for NATO troops. And then what will Biden do? Uh, Biden is stuck and he needs a, a, a way out. Um, just like he has said in the past that Putin needs a way out. Everybody needs an off-ramp on this right now, and the off-ramp has to come from the negotiating table. The Chinese proposal is basically a, a set of principles to say, let's sit down and start talking. But we, the American people, have to put more pressure on our government, or it's going to be a long war of attrition that could explode into a much, much more disastrous Third World War. Medea Benjamin, we want to thank you for being with us, co-founder of Code Pink, co-author of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. We'll link to your new article, Pentagon Leaks Punch a Hole in the U.S. Propaganda War. And again, Juan will be giving the keynote address at 10 a.m. Eastern Time at American University. Um, 
saying, uh, talking about the search for a new U.S. policy for a new Latin America burying 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. Joining him in that day-long conference will be Medea Benjamin, Nick Estes, and others. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!